Good evening, Clifford Baptist Church. Glad to see everybody here. We have a good group in the sanctuary tonight. Thank you for those of you who are streaming with us for this Bible study tonight. And we may have some out in the parking lot as well with an FM signal. So thank you so much for being with us as we continue on in a 32-lesson uh, study through the entirety of the Bible. And we tonight are on Lesson 24. Uh, before I get started, I do want to say that most of you who are with us tonight, uh, streaming with us, know that uh, we have had to be on guard for uh, COVID exposure. And I just want to make sure that you all know uh, that we are doing a great job in keeping the sanctuary and other areas of the church clean. Uh, we actually right now have uh, the professional mister and sprayer uh, that takes care of all the areas of our sanctuary and our church and our Sunday school rooms, uh, guaranteed to take care of all the germs that's floating around out there. Uh, and our church sanctuary will be cleaned after every Wednesday night service. It will be cleaned after every Sunday morning service. So every time the, the church gathers in the sanctuary or any other area of the church, it will have a fresh cleaning. So I want you to be aware of that and take some peace in that, that we are being diligent about making sure that all areas are clean, uh, disinfected, and ready for folks to come and to share together in worship. So I wanted to, just to start with that tonight and let you know you can be at peace about that. Uh, your church is doing well in making sure that all is good as our family comes together. With that, we're going to continue on in our study. Again, lesson 24 tonight. It is the centerpiece of everything we study. And so as we begin, let's do it with a word of prayer. Our Lord, our God, tonight as we gather here, thank you for the people of God who are here in the sanctuary, for those who are streaming with us tonight, for those who are in a parking lot listening on an FM signal. Lord, we are thankful to be together as your family tonight. However we gather, we are one family, Father. Physically, we might be separated by space, but we thank you, Father, that in the Spirit of Jesus Christ, we are joined together, and we're thankful for that, Lord. Tonight... As we did began last week, we are studying the heart of the Bible, the heart of the gospel message, the heart of the thread of the Bible that runs through, Lord, as it joins the Bible together with the love of God from the Old Testament through the New Testament. And so, Lord, we are thankful tonight that as we study, it brings us to this point. Bless us, we pray. May our Bibles be open. May our hearts be ready to receive your word tonight. We love you. We thank you. We are grateful to be together with our Bible tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin tonight, as, uh, let me catch you up. Last week, we studied the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Uh, again, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus that we study tonight is the fulfillment of the Word of God. It is the heart of the Word of God. Uh, it is the, the heart of our salvation and the word of hope and trust that we have. And so tonight we are in the, the midst of the, the best of God's holy good news to every one of us. The heading tonight that we're studying under is the Messiah. Uh, and tonight we are going to open our Bibles uh, to the book of John. If you want to be ready for me, uh, we're going to be in the book of John. So you can go on and open your Bible there. Go to around chapter 20. That's where we're going to pick up tonight. Uh, we're following up tonight on the central act and the central sacrifice and the central picture of the Bible. All of the Word of God from His creation 
to the fall into sin, to the history of Israel, to the system of sacrifice in the Old Testament, the love of God, the grace of God, the righteousness of God, all of the Bible finds its highest point and its culmination right here as we studied last week and as we're studying tonight in the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, last week we studied the pain and the agony and the horror of the cross of the Lord Jesus. Why did God expose himself to such pain? It teaches us in the book of Ephesians that God had established our plan of salvation before the foundation of the world. And so God knew fully well, even before human beings were created, that he was going to have to give himself that we might be saved. That the only way we would be saved was through his self-sacrifice. God knew that entirely well. Why would God expose himself to such pain? Why did Jesus bear the greatest torture of the world? He was tortured more than any other human being has ever been tortured in the world. Well, the depth of the pain that Jesus experienced signifies to us the awfulness of our sin before him, the depravity of the human condition We see it symbolized in the depth of his pain and what he had to experience in order to offer us salvation and grace and forgiveness and heaven. God loves us so much that he was willing not only to give himself but to create us knowing that he would have to give himself that we might be saved, that we might be forgiven, that we might belong to him. He loves us so much that he's willing to extend himself to that kind of pain. Jesus went to that length But he went to that length because our sin is that deep. He died to forgive us. He died as the suffering servant. But tonight, we are going to study the truth that he rose to give us eternal life. And he rose as the victorious Lord. Yes, he died as the suffering servant. But tonight, he is the victorious Lord. He lives. He is our Savior and is with us in these moments. The cost of the cross is utterly incomplete without the victory of the resurrection. Isn't that right? We can't simply uh, keep our attention on the cross because the resurrection is the center point of how we're saved and that we have a living Savior. You know, I'm going to give you a random thought here. Uh, This has been something that's rolled around in my mind for years. You know, in our jewelry uh, and what we wear on our bodies so often, we express our faith by wearing the cross. Uh, And probably all of us, male and female of like, have some form of the cross somewhere. I, I wear a ring with a cross on it. Many ladies, earrings, necklaces, the cross is a huge part of our lives, male and female. But the real symbol of our faith that sets our faith apart from every other faith in the world is that we have a resurrected Savior, that we have a living Savior. And so really, it's not that the cross is a bad symbol. The cross is a wonderful symbol. But I think that the empty tomb is a symbol that we should recognize as well. So I've often thought... I wish I could patent something in jewelry that would be the empty tomb that would go to coincide with the cross. I think the cross should have the empty tomb with it. 
So if any of you have a design, let me know. We'll get it patented, and uh, we'll put those two together. I think they fit together. They should be displayed together, the cross and the empty tomb, because that's the complete story of our salvation. The, empty cro- the cross is half of it, but the empty tomb fulfills what Jesus did on the cross. Well, all four Gospels give an account of the resurrection of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Tonight, I chose one gospel to concentrate on. Now, for those of you who have been with me through the years, you'll probably hear a lot of material in this lesson that I've preached on over the years, and a lot of it is going to ring a bell with you. But I'm also thinking about that person who's going through the Bible, perhaps for the first time, who may have never heard this information before. So I wanted to give my perspective on the cross and the empty tomb, but we're going to spring from the Gospel of John largely tonight. Uh, While I believe that it is intrinsically true for all four of the Gospels that express the resurrection of Jesus, I love the Gospel of John, and even more so since I've been preaching through it on Sunday mornings, because John literally states, I'm telling you this that you might believe, that you might come to Jesus as Lord and Savior. So as John writes in his gospel about the risen Christ, it is a witnessing tool that he wants others to know that same Jesus as he knows the Savior. I love John's evangelistic outreach approach with which he writes his gospel. Now, while I love commentary on Scripture, uh, and we will uh, refer a lot to the commentary on this Scripture tonight, we always must let Scripture speak for itself. So turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, and we're going to begin, stay there because I will read a little bit more a little later on in this lesson, but uh, let's begin with verses 1 through 10. And just hear these words as the gospel speaks for itself, as the Bible lays out its truth for us. John chapter 20, verse 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, And saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulchre. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed." For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. Sunday morning. Of course, you know it's very early in the morning. Jesus died in the afternoon of Friday. He was hastily buried because it was the eve of Passover. Sunday morning. 
so early it is still dark. John says, Mary comes to the tomb. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of the other Gospels, all say that there were other women with her as she came to the tomb. John mentioning her does not discount that there are others with her. Remember, his concentration is on a gospel message. And so the centerpiece of his gospel message is with Mary. While there may have been other women with her, as far as his message was concerned, they were kind of to the side. He was concentrating on Mary. He wanted everyone to know that Mary Magdalene came to that tomb. And that was important for us to know in John's writing. She is the centerpiece of what John wants to convey. The other gospelists say the reason the women came to the tomb was to bring additional spices uh, for Jesus' burial. Uh, He had been so hastily buried. He'd been taken off the cross. Uh, The Sabbath was beginning very soon. He had to be buried. The work had to be done before Sabbath began. And so he was hastily wrapped, hastily given spices for an anointing, and then buried in that borrowed tomb. So the women were coming. Mary was coming on Sunday morning because she and perhaps the others also wanted to add to the burial spices they wanted to show their respect and their love for the Savior who had died on the cross for them. But as Mary gets to the tomb of Jesus, again, John makes the notation that it is dark, early, early in the morning, and she sees the stone rolled from the mouth of the tomb, rolled to the side. I read recently that tombs of this sort, with the stones that actually cover the mouth of the tomb, that there, there is a, a, a runway that that stone rolls in, a track, if you will, that they would roll that stone so a series of a few men could take a stone that may have weighed a couple of tons and they could roll that stone across that track and in front of the mouth of the tomb to cover it. But the stone, having been moved, was a shock to her. And her first thought was not the thought of resurrection. Her first thought was the thought of foul play. That someone had moved the stone and had stolen the body of Jesus. Uh, She was shocked uh, and saddened that she saw the stone moved. It's sort of like if, if you go through a cemetery and you see that someone has pushed over a tombstone. How cruel that is that someone would just push over a tombstone and and ruin a burial site. That's the way she felt. Somebody has dishonored the Lord by pushing the stone away from the mouth of the tomb. So her first thought was a foul play. When she comes to that thought, she runs to find Peter and John. Of course, again, you see in the Gospel of John, he never refers to himself by name. It's always the disciple whom Jesus loved, That's the way he calls himself by name, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he uses it here in John 20. But as she sprints to find Peter and John, I want you to look at her statement again. Look at verse 2, John chapter 20, verse 2. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter, to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken, they, who's they? She's referring to somebody she doesn't know who they are. They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. 
The reason they laid him somewhere is because she suspected that his body was still very absent of life. They were laying a corpse elsewhere. So she's thinking this dead body has been removed from the the tomb uh, as an act of hatefulness, meanness. And Peter and John then run to the tomb. I always love the note that John makes, I outran him. I was the guy that got there first. I left Peter in the dust. But John stoops, and he looks into that tomb. And then Peter shows up, and he goes into the tomb. Well, that's just right according to his character that we understand throughout the gospel accounts and in Acts that uh, Peter is that impetuous guy and the one who is bold and courageous, uh, and he just marches right straight on inside of the tomb to check out. John is peeking in. Peter just walks right by and goes on into the tomb. And they see that the burial clothes lie there, empty. They see the napkin that traditionally is the piece of cloth that covers the face of the dead person. And the cloth uh, is neatly folded and laid to the side. Now, I want you to, to take note, this is the most powerful expression of God's might in the history of the world. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the uh, exemplary statement of how powerful God is and the might that God has to resurrect His Son from the dead. It is the mightiest act that has ever taken place, that ever will take place on the face of the earth. And yet, what we notice here, it was not an unorganized event. Uh, There was organization to it. It wasn't just an explosion that blew everything apart. But rather, this mightiest act of God upon the earth is neat and controlled and orderly. Well, John comes on into the tomb as well, joining Peter. And notice what he says about himself. This is a very important statement about John in verse 8. And you know what it is. It's the last two words. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. We see a statement of the belief of the disciple John that indeed this is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is not a dead body that has been moved, but rather he is a resurrected Lord. And he says, I came to the conclusion in my heart that that Jesus rose from the dead and his entire gospel revolves around that resurrection uh, and he wants to bring the entire world to where what he came to in verse 8. John said, I saw with my eyes and I believed. I'm writing this gospel because I want every person in the world to come to the same conclusion I came to that morning at the empty tomb. I want the world to believe, and that's why I'm writing the gospel. I want everybody to know what I know, what I saw at that empty tomb. Well, the disciples leave. They go back to their homes. And as we come to John chapter 20, verse 11, Mary is left behind. And it does seem here that Mary is very much alone. 
Uh, now, if she was joined by the other women, I'm going to assume that, yes, indeed, she was because the other gospel writers say so. The Bible is absolutely perfect. The Bible always is in line with itself. There is never a discrepancy in the Bible. So I believe absolutely there were other women with Mary. John just did not note them when he talked about Mary being there. But at this point with verse 11, it seems that Mary is absolutely alone now. Why is that? Why are the women not mentioned being with her here? Well, perhaps they too, when John and Peter went home, so did they. Why do we say that? They came to do a job. They came to give spices and anointing to a dead body. The dead body was not there. Their job was over. Their purpose was not fulfilled because the Savior was not there in the tomb. They had no one to anoint. There was no one to put spices on. So they took their spices and hauled them back home. They had no reason to have to stay. So it seems that Mary indeed is here alone. So with that, let's look at verses 11 through 18. John 20, 11 through 18. You know, this, these verses are so very familiar to us, and yet they seem so new every time I read them. Listen, verse 11. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself, saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascended to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Mary stands there crying. Obviously, this is an alone moment for her. And she stoops just to look into that tomb once again. And while John and Peter had been in there and all they saw were the grave clothes and the folded napkin, when Mary stoops to look in, she sees angels there, two angels there. And they're sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. And the angels ask, why are you crying? And again, she says, again, this is her mind. Someone has taken Jesus' body. Foul play is afoot here, and I have to know where they have laid his dead body. I want to know so that I can come to claim it. I want to know where his new burial site is. I must go there. And, of course, she rises from her stoop position, and there is a man immediately there with her. She doesn't recognize him. 
Now, there are probably three reasons that she doesn't recognize him. Number one, very obviously, perhaps it is still dark. Maybe she came so early in the morning time on that Sunday morning that the sun had yet to break the horizon, and it is still dark. Secondly, it had not occurred to her that this could even be Jesus. It was just not in her mind that Jesus could be standing there. She's looking for a dead body. It had not even dawned on her that this could be Jesus there with her. In her mind, she still thinks he is surely dead. But thirdly, the resurrection body as we understand it, and there's not a lot of description of the resurrection body in the Bible, but this much we know. It is very similar to our biological body, but very different from our biological body. I believe, personally, that we'll be able to recognize one another in heaven. I believe that we will bear characteristics of who we are now when we have our eternal body in heaven. There's going to be something that's very similar about you and me. Uh, I don't know, men, some of us might have hair, some might not. I don't know how that's going to work. But I just know, I believe that we're going to be able to recognize one another uh, while we're in heaven. Uh, but yet our, our resurrection body is different from our human body. Verse 15, he speaks to her. Why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Again, it's not dawned on her. She thinks she's talking to the keeper of the garden. And she says, Sir, if you will take me to him, tell me where he is. I want to claim his corpse now. And then the pivotal moment comes. He says something that she recognizes. He says her name, Mary. And when he says her name, all of the past floods in. He'd said that name to her hundreds of times. You know, she was a supporter of his ministry. Mary Magdalene followed Jesus and ministered to Jesus while Jesus ministered to others. Mary loved Jesus. And so the Lord had spoken her name literally hundreds of times. She had heard his voice say her name so many times. And when he said Mary that morning, she knew it was him. You know, our voices are like our fingerprints. Nobody has a voice like yours or mine. It's one of a kind, and she recognizes that voice when he says her name. Now, notice in verse 17 that Jesus says, don't touch me. Actually, when we go back to the original Greek, that's not exactly what he says. Uh, as you go back to Greek, actually, he says, don't hold to me. And the meaning of that is... When he says, don't touch me in one translation, don't hold to me in another translation, he, he's, he's saying, don't try to keep me here. You know, his ascension is coming very soon. And so he is telling her, you're not going to be able to hold me here. Uh, I won't be with you physically in the resurrected state much longer. I'm going to go back to my God and your God. So basically what he's saying to Mary is don't try to hold me here because I'm not going to be with you long. Now because of our time tonight, uh, I'm going to ask you, write this down. I want you to read this passage devotionally. John 20, read verses 19 through 31. Maybe in the morning that's a good devotional passage for you to read. Uh, these verses talk about the disciples witnessing Jesus that same day at evening time. 
and he, he shows them his hands, and he shows them his side as the proof that indeed he is the Lord, that he is risen from the dead. He speaks peace to their hearts. Now, again, many of you already know this part of the story, but I love it. Uh, Thomas is not there. At that moment in the evening time, the one disciple who was not present to see Jesus in his risen state on the day that he rose was Thomas. Thomas's other name, his descriptive name was Didymus, which means twin. Most likely, Thomas had a twin brother. Uh, but Thomas was not there that evening of the resurrection. And I, I love this account as Thomas meets uh, the ten. Of course, Judas Iscariot is off the picture, so there are 11 disciples, so there are ten gathered. When he meets the ten, they excitedly tell Thomas, disciple number 11, what they have seen. And as matter-of-factly as he can, he says, I will not believe it unless I feel it with my hands. I put my finger in the, the, the places that the nails ripped a wound in his body and put my hand in his side. And, of course, you know it was eight days later that Jesus appears to the disciples, including Thomas, and he offers his hands and his, he offers his side that Thomas might literally be able to touch him and feel him and give proof that indeed Jesus was resurrected. Again, remember, this is the resurrection body. And he offers it to be touched by Thomas. So again, our resurrection body is somehow similar to our physical bodies. It's touchable. We're going to hug one another. We're not going to have a coronavirus in heaven. We're going to hug one another in heaven. Uh, but as, as we look at this beautiful picture, uh, one of the things that we have to understand is that Thomas never touched Jesus. But rather, in the, the greatest expression of faith in the entire Bible, without touching him, but in sheer faith, he says, My Lord and my God. The greatest proclamation of faith that you will find in the entire Bible. Bible, my Lord and my God, chapter 20, verse 28. Now, one of the things that I said in my Easter message, if you were with me at Easter time this, past, this year, uh, I said this in the Easter message, but I want to include it tonight. The two letters of the alphabet that change eternity are M and Y. My. My Lord. My God. It is a personal decision coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, I accept you in faith as my Savior, my Lord, my God. The world can acknowledge Jesus. The world can say, yes, he came from heaven. Yes, he came as God. The world can recognize the church. The world can do religious things. The world can wear crosses and all the symbolisms of the faith. But salvation is based only on a personal relationship that includes the word my. Jesus is my Savior. I have a personal relationship with him. He is my Lord. Now, that key statement, look at John 20, verse 29. Jesus saith unto him. So here's the, the statement that Jesus, after he says, my Lord, my God, here's the statement that Jesus directs to Thomas and, of course, to the other disciples. Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. It is still a heart's decision. 
we have not seen him with our eyes, but we know in our hearts and our souls that he lives tonight, today, and that he can be our Savior if we will come to him and say, you are my Lord, you are my God, I accept you in my heart as my Savior. You know, before uh, I, I close uh, this study uh, of the resurrection, I, I want to uh, hit some of the high points. The centerpiece of the Bible, uh, I can tell you that as I finish preparing this, there's just so much more that could be said about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But briefly, let me cover John chapter 21 before we close tonight. Jesus, as the resurrected Lord, meets his disciples at the Sea of Galilee. Now, one of the things that doesn't sink in for a lot of people is, okay, so John chapter 20, they see him as the resurrected Lord, but they are in Jerusalem. And then John chapter 21 says they meet him at the Sea of Galilee. That's 70 miles to the north. They're not in the same place. So from John chapter 20 to John chapter 21, there's a 70-mile difference as where these disciples are that they might meet Jesus. I think that's a very important thing for us to recognize. There's a reason that the disciples went to Galilee, went to the Sea of Galilee. And the reference is in the best reference. There are several of them, but the best one is in Mark. Write this down. Mark 16, verse 7. Mark 16, verse 7. In Mark's account of the resurrected Jesus, this is what he says in verse 7. Chapter 16, verse 7. He says, but go your way. These are to the women. Go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter that goeth before you. I'm sorry, let me start that again. Go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him as he said unto you. So at the moment of the resurrection in Mark's gospel, the disciples are directed to go on to Galilee. It's there in Galilee, 70 miles to the north, that they're going to meet him. That's why they're there uh, at the Sea of Galilee. Obviously, the message got passed along to the disciples. They traveled the 70 miles north of Jerusalem to be there in Galilee. Now, I want you, again, read chapter 21 devotionally. It is a wonderful chapter of restoration, a chapter of calling in two disciples' lives. You remember Peter failed Jesus miserably as the head, leading, courageous disciple, the one who said, Lord, though all might uh, run away from you, I will die with you this night if, if it need be. And yet before the cross, he denied him three times. He wept bitterly. His sorrow was deep that he had betrayed his Lord with den denial three times. But as we think about chapter 21, Peter is restored and forgiven and the last chapter of John. Uh, he is forgiven the sin of denying Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion. And then there's this interesting statement. If you have your Bible open still, John 21, verses 20 and 21. Here's what happens. As Jesus forgives Peter and they're walking along and they're having this conversation, verses 20 and 21, then Peter, turning about, Seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, 
And what shall this man do? What shall this man do? So the scene is Jesus and Peter walking the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is restoring Peter. Jesus is recalling Peter to ministry. He is forgiving him. Uh, He's uh, restoring him to be the disciple who is going to be a major leader in the church. And we see that as Acts opens up. But as they walk along, tracing behind them, really not listening to their conversation, just tracing the footsteps of Jesus as he and Peter are walking along, is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who leaned his head on Jesus' chest when he instituted the Lord's Supper. And Peter's looking back and he says, Lord, I hear what you're saying to me about what I'm going to do. My question is, what, what's he going to do? What's, what's the disciple back here, John? What's going to happen to him? What's he going to do? And Jesus basically says, don't worry about him. Don't worry about what I'm calling John to do. You concentrate on your following me at all cost. Don't worry about the way I've called John. You think about the way I've called you. I have a plan for John. I will express that plan to John, but I want you to know my plan for you. And Peter did that. He lived God's plan. And history tells us, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but history tells us that Peter died a martyr's death. In fact, history says that he was crucified upside down. Again, that's not a biblical word, but that's what the historian Josephus says, that that Peter was actually crucified upside down. History further says, Josephus further says, that Peter's wife was crucified as well, and he watched Uh, Whether that is completely factual, I can't say it is tonight because it's not in the Bible, but that's what history says. Well, as I close, these are words for you and for me as believers. First of all, believers, those of us who are here in the sanctuary streaming in the parking lot, as a believer, there is one key word that you have to express, and the word is my. Jesus is my Savior. He has spoken every one of our names. Just as he spoke to Mary, he has spoken to us and called us to himself. And when we say, my Lord and my God, we enter into that personal saving relationship with him. As I close tonight, those words are for us. Don't be swayed. Don't be influenced. Don't be sidetracked by what anyone or anything else is doing in the world. Don't be swayed in your life for Christ by what you see happening in the world. You stay strong and true and on track by following the footsteps of Jesus and what he has laid for you and me to do individually as a minister of his. I'm grateful to to work side by side and hand in hand with you. We have, a lot of us have done so for over 35 years. But your plan is different from my plan. Your ministry is different from my ministry. We, we, we work hand in glove. We dovetail with one another, but we're very different, just as Jesus expressed that to Peter. John's calling is very different from yours, Peter. Do what Jesus calls you to do. Don't try to emulate someone else. You follow what Jesus calls you to do as a minister who belongs to him, and he will use your talents and your personality and your gifts and your strong points to be his minister in this world. I pray he uses mine as well, and we work together in a, a cohesive ministry, but every ministry of every child of God is on a special plan given by Jesus. You follow his plan.
I also want to say this as I close our service tonight. I believe that we need one another. And we will get into studying the church here in the next lesson or two. And when we do, I want to say to you that I believe that as the church, Jesus Christ created the church. The church is his creation as his outreach arm into the world. And I do not believe that it is an option for the Christian to be a part of the church. Yes, I'll go to church. Yes, I need the church. Yes, I'll worship in the church. Or no, I'm going to choose. I don't need the church. No. I truly believe that Scripture shows us that Jesus created the church for every child of God to be a part of the ministry of the church because we want to donate all of our talents and our time together. That ministry is completely done through all of the variety of talents that we have here, but also we need one another. Right now in this day, I believe we need one another more than ever before. We need to walk together so that we can be courageous as the people of God in this world. We need to walk together when, in this age, in this day, in this time. We need each other, and we need our Savior to guide us. Praise God, he is risen. Amen? And praise God, we thank him tonight that he belongs to us. He is my Lord, my God. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, thank you for these precious moments, Lord. Thank you for everyone who opened their Bible tonight. Father, this, this is the hinge pin. This is the centerpiece of your word. And we thank you, Father. That, uh, as Thomas said, my Lord and my God, the greatest statement of faith recorded in all of the Bible, I pray that everyone who is studying with me tonight has said that to you, Lord, that you are my Lord and my God. But tonight, in this very crucial moment of the Word of God, I pray that if there's one who has never come to Jesus as Lord and Savior, they will pray this little prayer with me. Dear Lord, I believe you went to the cross for me. I believe you shed your blood and died there, taking my sin there as the perfect Lamb of God. You took my place of punishment on the cross that I might be forgiven. I believe that, Father. I also believe that you rose from that grave on that first Sunday morning. And your resurrection to life assures me, as a child of God, I will live as well for all eternity with you. And so tonight, Lord, I say, my Lord, my God, I accept you as my Savior. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. I will worship you. I will serve you. And I will look forward to my eternal home in Jesus' name. Lord, for one who prayed that prayer tonight, eternity, if they prayed it from their heart with faith, Eternity has changed for them. I pray you bless us as we continue to study the truth uh, and the, the magnitude of your word, Lord, that uh, is so important in our lives as children of God. We love you, we thank you, and we thank you for the love letter of the Bible, and it is in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Good night. <laughs>